0: To the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher.
1: Most of you probably have never heard of the man named Edward Moat. Now Moat was born in January of 1797 in London, England, and his family was poor. He did not come from a Christian home. And later on in life, he would say this, he would say, my Sundays were spent out in the streets so ignorant was I that I did not know there was a God. In the school that he went to back in that day, Bibles were not even allowed to be seen. And as a teenager, Edward began to learn the art of making cabinets. But then something happened. At age 16, his boss took him to hear a preacher at a local church. And there he was converted and began his lifelong journey of following Jesus. And at first, this meant moving outside of London and becoming committed to a local church and just going about his job, making cabinets, building cabinets for a living. And then one day in 1834, as he was walking to work, Edward decided that he should write a hymn. You can thank God right now that I've never decided to write a hymn. Some of you have heard me singing. Well, he decided he should write a hymn. And by the time he got to work, he had already figured out the course. And he was able to complete four of the verses by the end of that day. You guys actually know his work. He's written hundreds of songs. But the words of the song that he wrote on that day, the first verse of this hymn has these words my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And then most of us knows exactly where it goes from there. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand." Well, about a decade and a half after writing that hymn, Mote became the pastor of a Baptist church in a building that he had actually helped to build with his own hands. And there he preached for 26 years until he got too sick to preach, stepping down at an old age. But just before his death, he made this comment, and this is why I tell you about him. He said, The truths I have been preaching, I am now living upon, and they do very well to die upon. I want you to stop and think about that comment right there. Edward Moat died at the age of 77. And I tell you this story so that you can get a picture of a man who understood the biblical meaning of salvation. Here was a man who knew that there was absolutely nothing he could do in his life to earn God's favor. Here was a pastor who knew that what the people needed to hear most was that Jesus Christ was their only hope. You see, most people in this world out there will go through life never understanding what Edward Mote understood. Most people will live their lives assuming that somehow, some way, heaven will be obtained because they lived a sincere life. If we change that hymn to how most people think today, it would actually say something like this. My hope is built on something less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I trust my skills. I trust my fame and maybe sometimes Jesus' name. You see, it's one of the common traps that the enemy leads us into. The fancy term for this kind of attitude is self righteous A self-righteous person thinks that they are righteous all by themselves. Sometimes it's about something they think about themselves that is making them righteous. Sometimes they think it's a a good work that is making them righteous. Some tradition that they follow makes them righteous. But scripture confronts this mindset, doesn't it? Doesn't Paul say in Romans chapter 3, He says, as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. You see, on his own, there's not one person. No man, no woman can be reconciled to a holy God. No man on his own is righteous before him. You see, the depravity of man is the only doctrine that we have with thousands of years of evidence and testimony behind it. Because 6,000 years of men on this earth has shown that left on their own, men do not seek after God. And as we come to Philippians chapter 3, we're going to see Paul make this same type of argument. He's going to tell us that there is nothing that we should have confidence in except Jesus Christ. As the hymn says, our hope should be built on nothing less than Jesus shed blood on the cross and on his righteousness on our behalf. So let's look to the word of God this morning. Verse one in Philippians tells us, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. See, now Paul is about to tell us that there are several things that we should not trust in. And the first thing that he warns us about is not to trust in the rituals of men. And verse 1 is really just a transition verse. Paul reminds the church of the joy that is to be found in Jesus Christ. And he says it in a way here in the Greek that is literally like this. Keep on rejoicing in the Lord. Keep on rejoicing in the Lord, he tells them. Because we should have the inward joy that comes from knowing and trusting God. Where does joy come from? Joy comes from a steady relationship with God. And so Paul says, find your joy in him. Even when life is difficult. Paul did. He found his joy. Remind yourself of what God has done for us, the eternal life we have in him, his love. It all should bring us joy. And then Paul turns to the issue of protecting the church from the false teachers. And this is why he mentions here he's being repetitive, that he's repeating things. But it was a good thing because it's kept him safe from corrupt doctrine. So Paul starts out with a rebuke in verse two. Look at what he says. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, dogs in the New Testament were not pets. Dogs were seen as trouble. And they would roam around back in that day in large packs. Dogs would feed on garbage, always looking for something to eat. And sometimes they would attack people. They were wild. They were unclean animals that threatened the safety of everyone. Jews, of course, referred to Gentiles this way. In the Jewish mindset, someone that was called a dog was a person that was outside of their beliefs. But notice how Paul uses this. He's not referring to Gentiles, is he? He's not saying that at all. But to the Jews themselves promoting a false gospel, he's warning the church to watch out for those who would tell them that they needed to follow the Old Testament law, especially circumcision, in order to be saved. Those who mutilate the flesh are those who practice circumcision for salvation. These were the men who were sitting there inviting men to Christ with the scriptures in one hand and a knife for circumcision in the other hand. Now, why is Paul so strong on this? Why does Paul make such a big, big deal about this? Because Paul knew that these people thought that you could be made righteous by something you do, by being circumcised. And Paul would go toe to toe and argue against anyone. He would stand against anyone who insisted on trying to obtain righteousness by something you do, by works, instead of counting on the righteousness that comes to us from Jesus Christ. So Paul said, watch out for them watch out for them. Doctrine matters, Paul is saying. Paul said beware three times, three times in this short little verse. He says beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Watch out for these people because salvation is a work of God that comes by the Holy Spirit of God as a person trusts in Christ's sacrifice on the cross for their sins. And so that's why in verse three, Paul says, we, we are of the circumcision. We are the real circumcision. Why does he say that? Not about physical circumcision, but he's saying, because our hearts, our hearts have been circumcised by God and we don't have confidence in the flesh. We don't have confidence in the things that we do to earn salvation. Our worship of God is by the spirit of God, he says, meaning that the spirit of God living in us prompts us and empowers us to worship, to pray and to live for the glory of God. And we certainly don't boast in ourselves. We glory in Christ. Christ makes us acceptable to God, not something we do. He's our focus. He's our hope. It's the free gift of God's grace through Christ that made us believers. And so Paul says to us, starting in verse four, he says, though, I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisee. In 2014, software giant Microsoft paid two. .5 not million, $2.5 billion to buy the company that created the game, Minecraft. That's a lot of cash. Now this deal made this man right here, Marcus Person, a billionaire. His personal net worth went up very quickly, very, very quickly. All of a sudden, he found himself now worth about $1.3 billion. That's not a bad paycheck. He had the money to outbid some of the biggest stars for a home in Beverly Hills that cost him $70 million, described as a mega mansion. Now, this home, they say, has everything. My favorite part is that it has M&M towers in it that you can just walk in and grab M&Ms anytime you want. That's a pretty sweet deal. It has a movie theater, 15 bathrooms. You don't have to fight about the bathrooms anymore. You got to clean all those, I guess, or have somebody to do it for you. But 15 bathrooms, that's a lot. But just to show you that money or the things you do do not get you happiness, listen to what happened to him. On August 29th of 2015, Marcus posted a series of tweets that captured the now lack of purpose in his life. Listen to what he posted on Twitter. 4.48 in the morning, he says, the problem with getting everything is that you run out of reasons to keep trying and human interaction becomes impossible due to imbalance. 4.50 a.m., just a couple minutes longer. He says, hanging out with a bunch of friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. Two more minutes go by. 4.52 a.m., we sold the company, and the biggest effort went into making sure that our employees got taken care of, and they all hate me now. 4.53 a.m., Found a great girl, but she's afraid of me and my lifestyle and went with a normal person instead. See, Marcus learned a hard lesson that money or the things we buy cannot fill the void that is left in us. Nothing we accomplish here on earth can fill the longing to be at peace with our creator. Or as Christ himself said, he said it this way, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses what? His own soul. For Paul, here was his list before his salvation. He says, don't put any confidence in the flesh because if any Hebrew male wanted to go toe-to-toe with the Apostle Paul, this is who he was. If there was any person that would have been tempted to save themselves or have confidence in their own achievements, it would have been the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. His parents obeyed God's law and had him circumcised on the eighth day as God instructed in Leviticus. From the time of Abraham, every Jewish male was to be circumcised on the eighth day. I'm an Israelite, Paul says. In his second letter to the church of Corinth, Paul said this. He said, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Israel was the chosen nation of God. They were told this through the words of Moses. Deuteronomy 7, 6 tells them, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. God chose Israel to be his people. So the thinking then went like this. God chose the Hebrew nation to be his own treasured possession. And so the mindset was, I'm a Hebrew. I'm a member of that nation. Therefore, therefore, I'm one of God's treasured possessions. I belong to him. And then that is where the problem came. They would say, I belong to him, but I know him simply because I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Hebrew. And there was nothing about faith. This is not what God intended to accomplish when he chose Israel to be his people. He wanted them to be a light for the nations. They were to point the way to the one true living God. But instead, the people of Israel constantly became consumed with the idolatry of their neighbors. And even when the Messiah came, even when their own Messiah came, the one they said that they were all waiting for, they crucified him on a piece of wood. It should have been obvious to them that being a Hebrew, their nationality, their bloodline did not guarantee that they knew God. But a privilege like that, that's hard to let go of, isn't it? So Paul tells them, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul's reinforcing his claim as a Hebrew because some in Paul's day would have no idea what tribe their family belonged to. Paul knew not just of the Hebrew people. Now, Benjamin, who is he? Well, he was the younger of the two sons born to Jacob and Rachel. Benjamin was the only son of Jacob born in the promised land. Paul could trace it all the way back. He's saying, if you want to go to Ancestry.com, I can go there. He's saying, I can trace it all the way back to the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe that produced the first king of Saul. Paul might have been named after that king. This tribe was known as faithful warriors for Israel. The tribe of Benjamin was faithful to the Davidic throne when the kingdom was divided. Paul could trace his family line all the way back to Abraham. His bloodline was pure. Paul was a Hebrew through and through, a member of the covenant people of God. And so if you made a list of the Israelites, according to the pure lineage, he would be at the top of that list. The blood of Jacob flowed through Paul. In America, we would say it like this. He would be a member of the Kennedy family or the Bush family. He learned from the best rabbis. It would be like going to the Ivy League schools of his day. He was born in Tarsus, a Gentile city, but moved to Jerusalem to study under the great rabbi Gamaliel. And he describes this in Acts 22, three, where he says, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's laws and was zealous toward God. Paul spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. Many of the Jews in that day were now speaking Greek. Paul was loyal to the language of Israel. Everything that we know about Paul was Hebrew he was a Hebrew. And yet he does not cling to it. He does not believe for a second that any of these things he lists could reconcile him to a holy God. He began to see now why he says that if any man could boast about what they'd accomplished, it would be Paul. It would be him. But still he writes, I have no confidence in these things. You see, I want you to hear me on this. It wasn't his nationality. It wasn't his position and it wasn't the group that he identified with that reconciled him to God or even his family background, his family that he was from. Paul writes concerning the law of Pharisee. Now, I think most of you know that there was several factions in that day of the Jews in the first century. The Sadducees, they denied the authority of tradition. They followed the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. They denied the existence of angels. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. These were the wealthy people of Israel. They controlled the temple in Jerusalem. But Paul was a member of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were descendants of the Jews who had fought against the Greeks when the Greeks ruled over them. They saw themselves as a little bit better than everyone else. They were separate. They were the elite. They were educated and they were smart and they led the opposition against our savior. These guys were all about rules and despised any Jew who did not follow their rules. And by the time of Jesus, most Pharisees were consumed with pride and hypocrisy. The Sadducees controlled the temple, but the Pharisees, they got to the synagogues. The Pharisees controlled the synagogues. So to be a Pharisee meant you were strict in how you lived. You had a passion for God. There's no doubt you were passionate for God, but you were off base. You were off course. You were misguided in what you believed. You saw yourself as an elite Jew, better than the rest. It meant that you knew the smallest little details of the law. You followed it all and you were so dedicated to following those little tiny details that you went on and made extra rules to prevent yourself from even coming close to breaking the law. Let's put it in modern terms. If the law said, do not eat pizza on Wednesday... If I was a Pharisee, I'm going to make you guys hungry for pizza is what I'm about to do. If I was a Pharisee, then I would certainly not eat pizza on Wednesday, but then I would also make a rule that no one should eat any of the ingredients of pizza on Wednesday. So no cheese, no tomato sauce, no pepperoni. And then I would also tell you, don't eat pizza on Tuesday or Thursday either, just to make sure there's no overlap with Wednesday. But it wasn't pizza, was it? It wasn't pizza they did this with. It was everything in the Mosaic laws. You see, their pride made them believe they were honestly living in obedience to God. And that's why you see in the Gospels, Jesus was blasting these men in the Gospels over and over, because instead of the leading the people to God, they're a bunch of prideful hypocrites. And Paul is saying, this is who I was. That's who I was before Christ. He had religion, but he didn't have faith in Christ. He did not have the righteousness of Christ living in him. And looking back, Paul said that having confidence in being a Pharisee, it didn't help him either. It didn't help him before God. And even when it came to following his motives before God, Paul had no confidence. Look at verse six concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless blameless. You see, being sincere before God was not enough. And so he says concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Before Paul encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, he was a feared enemy of the church of Jesus Christ. He was so devoted to what he believed that he would arrest Christians and throw them in jail for their faith in Jesus Christ. He would vote to execute Christians, He persecuted believers so much that even after coming to faith in Jesus Christ, that shame and reputation made the Christians scared of him. And don't you see that in the book of Acts? You know, if you go to Egypt today, you can find an old abandoned graveyard. And in that graveyard, you can find the tombstone of this man, William Borden. In the early 1900s, he was the heir to the Borden Dairy estate, and William was a millionaire by the age of 21. But he renounced his fortune, giving nearly all his wealth to missions. His heart's desire was to take the gospel to the Muslims in China. And on his way to China, he stopped in Egypt to learn the language. But four months later, Four months later, he came down with spinal meningitis. He died at age 25. His grave marker, it describes, it's a beautiful phraseology that's on it. It describes his his love for Christ. It describes William's commitment and love for the Muslim people. But listen to the very last words on his tomb. It says this, apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. And I think this is what Paul is telling us all throughout Philippians 3. He's saying, apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for his life. Christ came into his life. Christ interrupted his life and changed everything. Before that day, on the road to Damascus, Paul was very sincere in what he believed, but it did not bring him the righteousness that is needed to reconcile us to God. You see, sincerity means nothing if the truth is missing. Sincerity means nothing if faith is missing. Paul was sincere before Christ, but Paul was wrong. And the world is absolutely filled with people like this, isn't it? Most of the world believes in a God, but most of the world does not have faith in the truth of Jesus the Christ. And so this is why we see people all around the world who will make any effort, pay any price and sacrifice anything in their attempt to please God. And they may pray and they may fast and they may live in poverty and they may go to church. But none of these things will guarantee anything before a holy and righteous God, because righteousness cannot come from being sincere. It has to come from God. You see, when Paul faced the reality of Jesus Christ, this persecutor of the church realized that his misguided passion belonged in the spiritual loss column. We all know people today who would say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're true to yourself or as long as you're true to your own faith. And maybe that sounds good to you, but that statement could not be more wrong. Paul was sincere, but wrong. You see, it does matter. Exactly it matters what you believe. The authenticity of what you believe matters. You can be sincere in your belief that we have aliens visiting this earth right now. That would explain some things, but it doesn't make you right. You can be sincere in believing that everyone goes to heaven. But if they don't, then your belief is false. See, Muslims can wholeheartedly believe that they're serving Allah, who is the one true God. But if Allah does not exist, then their belief is false. And we must be prepared Christians to say the same thing about the Christian faith. We can sincerely believe that Jesus is the way to salvation, but if they ever find his bones still laying in a hidden tomb in Israel, then our belief is false. But praise God, the New Testament speaks of over 500 witnesses to the resurrection of Christ because Christ is alive and Christ is the only way to heaven. Paul writes at the end of verse six concerning the righteousness under the law, blameless. What is he saying? He's not saying he was perfect. No man is perfect. He's saying if a right standing before God is is earned by obeying the Mosaic law, then he was blameless. See, Paul, as a Pharisee, he wouldn't have gone into the home of a Gentile. He wouldn't have touched anything that would have been made unclean by the uncircumcised. Paul fasted, Paul tithed, Paul kept the Sabbath, but righteousness cannot be earned by the law. So let me ask you this, what do you do? And thankfully, Paul, he gives us the answer. He says in verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these I've counted as lost for Christ. This is the same man who had his heart beat with joy in the book of Acts at the bloody stoning of Stephen. He's now rejoicing in being scourged and stoned for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, everything Paul worked for, for all those years, he now rejected. Anything that you think can make you acceptable before God, count it lost, throw it out. Because instead, Paul says, trust in Christ, what? Imputed righteousness. Let's read starting in verse eight, and I'll explain in a minute. He says, yet indeed, I also count all these things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith. Paul is saying to the legalists, you can have your rules. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what he's telling them. Paul is saying how I have lived since the day Christ came into my life. I have made all my life choices on the basis of getting to know my Savior, Jesus the Christ, better. And knowing that one day I will absolutely stand before him. And everything I counted on before is rubbish. Meaning useless waste. The word meant dung. It meant food scraps. It meant garbage. Paul says everything I strive for was not only worthless... It was offensive. It was stinky. It was dangerous because it made me think that I could be reconciled to a holy and perfect God by something that I do. Now I have the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus, my Lord. He says, I've gained Jesus Christ. I have this huge negative list over here of all the things I tried, but now what do I have over here? I gained Christ. It wasn't just salvation. It wasn't just conversion. It was the growing relationship Paul had with the Savior. You see, we receive Christ at regeneration, but this is the only, the beginning of the discovering of the riches that we have in Christ. His wisdom, his love, his grace. It's all hidden in Christ. And it takes more than a lifetime to search it out in the scriptures, all that he's given to us in Christ. God does not move us as Christians beyond the gospel. He moves us more deeply into the gospel because all of the power that we need in order to change and mature comes through the gospel of Christ. The gospel does not simply ignite the Christian life. It is the fuel that keeps Christians moving and growing. It's the fuel that keeps Christians growing each day in Christ. Real change cannot come apart from the gospel of Christ imputation there's my big word for you okay imputation it's a word that you should really know if you're a christian to impute something means to reckon or credit something to someone else's account and that's what paul's talking about here he had his big negative list of all the things he tried to be reconciled to god and nothing was working and the imputation of christ's righteousness is to those with faith in him We're credited with his righteousness. And let me tell you why this matters. You should have noticed by now, if you're following along, that Paul has been teaching us that a right standing before God is not something we can obtain. It cannot happen. Anything we try is rubbish, Paul says, dung, waste, meaning there's nothing we can do on our own that will make us righteous and acceptable before God. God's righteousness must be given to us it must be imputed to us his righteousness must be put into our account credited into our account because there's only one person who ever lived truly perfect righteous life his name is Jesus the Messiah the Lord of the universe faith in his sacrifice on the cross and the empty tomb is what brings righteousness and so Paul says in verse nine, the righteousness I have is from God by faith. Paul desired to be found in him in Christ. I think Paul is at this point in the text. I think he's actually looking forward to the return of Christ. I don't think he's just talking about salvation. I think he's moving past that. And I think he's saying that when Jesus Christ returns and I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I want to be found in him because I've received the righteousness, which is from God by faith, meaning that when he stands before Christ, he wants to be resting on the work of Christ, not on his own. And then we read, starting in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Do you see the focus being conformed to his death? If by any means I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. What is Paul doing at this point? Paul's jumping back to the teaching of verse eight, knowing Christ, because only those with a right standing before God can know the power of Christ's resurrection and attain the resurrection from the dead. Only those reconciled to God through faith will see eternal life. It's all of God's grace. Because for Paul, knowing Christ was more important than anything in this world. And when Paul says, I want to know the power of his resurrection, he's saying, may the power of God in me, may the same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead, glorify Christ in my life. And if that means suffering for the Savior, so be it because Christ suffered for us. I think Paul's driving at here is that there's a fellowship for believers that suffer. And Paul is saying, after everything that Christ has done for me, Paul is saying, I am so identified with Jesus Christ that I am dead to my former life. And if that means following the Lord into the valley of the shadow of death, Paul would follow in obedience. He's saying, Christ died for my sin. Let me be dead to sin and how I live by the power of Christ living in me. And with verse 11, let me just say this. I don't think Paul is doubting his own resurrection from the dead like the English may imply, but instead I believe Paul is actually referring to the rapture, the hope that Christ would return in his life, because the Greek suggests a resurrection that is apart from other dead people. And so Paul is saying that he hoped to live to experience the rapture, the resurrection from the dead, rather than dying. Kara Tippetts, a pastor's wife, A mother of four, Kara lost her battle with cancer and went to be with the Lord Jesus back in 2015. And I mentioned her to you this morning because her words, her words are challenging. As the cancer spread, Kara embraced her situation with courage. She trusted in a sovereign God. She believed throughout all of her suffering that cancer was not the point, but that Jesus was. And Kara and her family had to process what God was calling them to live out. They had to think this through and take a little bit of time and reflect. Okay, this is bad. What is God doing? How would she trust God in the middle of her suffering? How would she trust God while she was sick? But she refused. What I like about her story so much is she refused to be defined by the cancer. She considered every moment of life a gift and an opportunity to learn more about grace and trusting in God. And she believed that the suffering was not an absence of beauty, but an opportunity to understand God's love on a deeper level. Near the end of her life, here's the words that she wrote. She wrote this. My little body has grown tired of the battle, and the treatment is no longer helping. But what I see, what I know, what I have is Jesus. He's still given me breath, and with it I pray I would live well and fade well. By degrees of doing both, living and dying, as I have moments left to live, I get to pray into eternity my hopes and fears. I get to laugh and cry and wonder over the hope of heaven. I do not feel like I have the courage for this journey, but I have Jesus and he will provide. You see, life is filled, absolutely filled with situations that test us beyond what we can bear or handle on our own. They stretch us. They stretch our faith and our hope to the point of absolutely breaking because we don't, always have a way of trusting things that we should and we have a way of trusting things that we shouldn't. We put our hope in money only to see the stock market go up and then come back down. We put our hope in our home and then the bank forecloses or the money in our retirement account just disappears and vanishes. Money will fail you. Bad things happen and money can just slip away. We put our hope in good health I will tell you there is no worse feeling than sitting next to the hospital bed of someone you love and their health is failing. Or the person you love is in pain and you feel powerless. You're hoping that doctors and nurses can heal. We put our hope in health so that we can live our lives our way, so that we can work and play as we wish, but our health and the health of those around us, it will fail. We put our hope in the people around us, but life is not lived alone. Many times we rely on other people. We trust our spouse. We trust our children. We do the best with the people that we can work with. And yet every person will fail. You trust in a boss and he can stab you in the back. You trust in a spouse and they can cheat on you. And sometimes people just stink. I mean, they do. Sometimes people just stink. They fail. Our kids will make the wrong choices and then look at us with all of the blame. When we're around people, sin and mistakes happen and they will let us down. It's a part of it's a part of life. People fail. So how do we live? See, This is the testimony of Paul that our lives do not need to be defined by what we're going through, but it all depends on this. What are you counting on? Look at your suffering and your struggles as an opportunity to know Jesus Christ better. Lean on Him. Learn from Him. Rest in His plan. Rely on His strength and grow closer to Jesus Christ. That's the goal. We first started this morning with the words of Edward Motors. Read them again. It says, The truths I've been preaching, I am now living upon, and they do very well to die upon. You see, Paul knew this, Kara Tippett knew this. And I hope your knowledge of Christ surpasses just knowing Jesus Christ for salvation so that you learn to live by his power, getting to know the Savior. So be found in him, be found in his righteousness, knowing that he is the only thing, he's the only person that we can count on. Build your life on nothing less than his blood and righteousness. And how does it go? It says, and rest in his power. Rest in His power in your life, just as Paul prayed in Ephesians 1 for the church, and we'll close with this, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. Return to the Word
0: Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com. Or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.